Hi, and welcome to The 5 by your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Mason creates some quilts and patchwork, I barter with aliens for resources and sidereal confluence, Christy explores Raxon, a card game set in the dead of winter world, and Laura guesses secret words in werewords. But first, Catherine loads up some ships in Medici. Games are kind of like people. Some do best when played alone, and others require lots of people to be around them partying to find success. Some games improve when played with the right makeup of participants. Few games, and few people, can succeed in all different environments at all different player counts. Medici, I would argue, is such a game. Sam and I played it a number of times two-player, and found it to be a solid and compelling push-your-luck puzzle. We were also lucky enough to play it with four other seasoned veterans as the opening game of a small con, and again the game shined. When played with new gamers at a family gathering, it prompted multiple queries on phones of where they could purchase their own copy. Playing the game with another couple as a four-player game was a delightful way to spend an hour. We were so convinced of its superiority that we started carrying it with us as a security blanket, a go-to game when played with uncertain characters in unknown environments. Medici is designed by the prolific Reiner Kinesia and has been published a number of times since 1995, which was two years before Kinesia quit his day job as a quantitative analyst to become a full-time game designer. The version that I have and love is illustrated by the talented Vincent Dutre and published by Grail Games. It is important to note that this is the only version with two-player rules baked in. Medici is loosely based on a trading in the Mediterranean theme where each player is trying to bring in boats loaded with goods of varying qualities so they can dominate the market of those goods. Money is victory points in Medici. You start with 40 money on a track that rings the edge of the board. Every florin you bid comes off that track, and every florin you earn comes back to that same track. At the end of the game, richest person wins. The game takes place over three rounds. In each round, players will attempt to fill their boats with the most lucrative goods, and at the end of each round, a scoring will award points for the choices people made. If a player is too quick to bid high in auctions, they can end up filling their boat with lesser goods. If they are too picky, however, they could end up with randomly filled or empty spaces on their boat at the end of the round. The single bid auction is punchy. It requires players to pay attention to the market and what those cards might be worth. Since player order rotates, you go through cycles of having last say, and cycles of knowing that the ideal set of cards will inevitably slip through your fingers. The number of players determines the number of cards in the auction deck, which is limited enough to keep people from being too picky, and generous enough that most people will fill their boats each round. To start an auction, first player will turn over one to three goods cards, one at a time, stopping when they either reach the limit of their remaining boat space or by showing particular restraint with a lucrative flip. The single-bid auction forces each participant to decide how much they are willing to bid for the cards on auction and to predict what others might be willing to pay for those cards and preempt them by bidding higher. First player gets to bid last. Once the auction is completed, winner pays up, loads their boat, and the lovely first player marker moves to the next player clockwise. Only players with adequate remaining space in their boat will be eligible to participate in an auction. This creates an interesting tension, with some finished with their boats, waiting to see what others will end up with in opportunities or heartache for those that wait with empty space. Each goods card has a number on it showing the value of those goods. That can range from 1 to 5. In addition, there's a 10 gold coin card that does not count for any of the goods tracks, but can ensure lucrative boat bonuses at end round scoring. 
And a round scoring start with a boat scoring with sizable bonuses for having the boat with the most goods values. And stepping down to no bonus for the player with the lowest boat value. In the center of the Grail Games Edition main board is a set of concentric circles split into pie sections for the different goods in the game. Players have a marker for each good that starts on the outside ring of the pie. During endgame scoring, all players will move their marker up a level for every card of every type of good on their boat. I might have three spice cards, a grain, and a cloth on my boat, so regardless of the number of values on those cards, I will end the first round with spice at level 3 and grain and cloth at level 1. There are bonuses for being first and second in each good type, as well as bonuses for reaching the upper echelons of the inner circle for each good. Focusing on a specific good type or two can be a good strategy, but is often difficult to do. You fill your boat three times, your majorities in the different goods building on previous efforts round to round. This adds an extra juicy dynamic to the auctions in later rounds as you know what your opponents do and do not want. The game is so incredibly simple, but provides a great decision space and a touch of luck to even the score between the new and the experienced. If you have a go-to game like Medici, share it with me on Twitter, where you can find me at Kybrarian, or on BGG, where I go by Cat Library, both with a K. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver, and let's talk about Patchwork. Patchwork is Uwe Rosenberg's 2014 two-player masterpiece of tile quilting. Patchwork has been out a little over four years, and is still, at least to my mind, the center of the tabletop games that are Tetris but aren't Tetris world. You and your opponent are buying tiles from a circular market, placing the tiles on your quilt board, and getting paid for the buttons on your quilt as you move the game clock forward. There's a good reason Patchwork is ranked top five in abstract games, family games, and two-player games. Megan and I have played it almost a hundred times in the last four years, and if you asked me to play right now, I'd say yes. It's one of the very few games I've rated a perfect 10. Patchwork is certainly not without its detractors, though. I almost never read other reviews before I talk about a game, but because I'm not really capable of being objective about Patchwork, I wanted to make sure it wasn't just me. So I read through several negative reviews, and it turns out that the things that other people don't like about it are exactly the things I do. BGG user says, However, what I find really annoying is that long-term plans that go beyond the current move are virtually impossible to execute, as every move depends on the previous movement of the opponent. Like, my dude, that's the point. Patchwork is a mostly tactical game that really cuts the legs out from under strategy bros by forcing each player to consider how their actions open opportunity for the other player turn by turn. Here's another one. It's a little too simple and luck-based for me. See a perfect piece? Oops, too bad. It's halfway around the circle and the game will be over before you get there. Yeah, if the game allowed you to buy any piece from the market that you wanted, it would just be a puzzle, dude. You can only choose from the three tiles in front of the pawn. When you buy a tile, you move the pawn to the empty space, allowing the other player the choice of the next three tiles. A lot of the tension in patchwork is trying to both play your own game, while at the same time judging how your tile choices will benefit or handicap your opponent. Okay, so what about the theme? A cute little two-player game with a decent mechanical design, though the theme is utterly dull and borderline insulting. Would have to be very bored to resort to this again. Now, this person also rated Monster Apocalypse and the Cthulhu expansion for Smash Up as perfect tens, so we are clearly at cross-purposes of taste and aesthetics. Patchwork is an abstract game, and the theme is wholly unnecessary, but it's lovely and calming, and especially in 2014, was a breath of fresh air from the ceaseless tide of zombie games that came out over those couple of years. Lookout Games art director and illustrator Clemens Franz, who you may know from Agricola at all, used real vintage fabric swatches as a basis for his tile illustrations. So what about the new Patchwork Express? Hey, that has the word Express in it, it's even cheaper than Patchwork, 
$20 versus $25, and it's probably faster or easier or more appealing to beginners, right? Mm, no? We recently bought Express in our big holiday order with all the little cousins' Christmas games. It was on sale for 13 bucks. How could we go wrong? We love patchwork! To be fair, I hadn't really looked at Express closely, and for some reason I thought it was both players competing on a central board, like a quick head-to-head -head patchwork battle. It's not, so I must have dreamed that. As a side note though, someone whipped me up a set of rules for Patchwork Rumble that is this using my existing copy of Patchwork. Patchwork Express is a smaller grid, 7x7 instead of 9x9, and the pieces are therefore proportionally larger. But that's about it. Same basic setup, with the addition of some specially marked tiles that are added toward the end of the game, but I found that aspect sort of annoying and fiddly. The math doesn't seem any easier for younger players, although the tile cost and rewards do seem to have been rebalanced. Lookout has some marketing materials pushing Express for younger and older players, and one of the only use cases I can see for it is as a basically large print edition of the game. However, if you're a person with dexterity impairment, the tiles are still too difficult to pick up off the table, so it's not any more physically accessible. The increased contrast on the tiles for cost information might help some players, but I actually found the resulting increased color density of the cost labels more difficult to read than the original, though they are larger. So for us, Express was a loser. It's the same game, it's not any faster, and I found it harder to read. Now, if you didn't own the original game and someone gifted you Express, you'd be happy playing it forever. It's still a great game. If you already own Patchwork and are happy with it, do not buy Express. There's no reason to own it. If you're considering which one to buy, just buy regular Patchwork. In 2019, Uwe and Lookout are releasing a roll-and-write version called Patchwork Doodle, and I'm intrigued but highly skeptical. I'm not opposed to there being a zillion Patchwork titles, but my request would be for a $100 super deluxe version with big chunky plastic azul or marble-like domino-style pieces and wooden player boards. Maybe we'll get one for the 10th anniversary edition, who knows. So who should play Patchwork? I'll assume my usual format here and just say basically everyone. If you enjoy the 5 by and don't own Patchwork, go buy it. If you know any pair of people of reasonable intelligence who might even be mildly interested in games, buy them a copy of Patchwork as a gift. If someone asks you for a game recommendation, just say Patchwork. I give Patchwork 10 out of 10 hand-quilted board game caddy systems available soon on Kickstarter, probably. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and now Instagram, where I mostly post bad 70s TV board games and weird stuff I clip out of vintage magazines at Discount Compost. Hey, Five by Family. Mason here with a special contest for our listeners. As a celebration of our two-year anniversary, I'm giving away a brand new copy of one of my favorite games, Antoine Bowser's Takedo, covered by Ruel back in episode 45. Just send an email titled Takedo Contest to 5bygames at gmail.com and tell us where you would go if you could drop everything and take a relaxing journey. Deadline for entry is midnight Eastern, Saturday, February 9th, 2019. We'll draw a random entry and I'll announce the winner in episode 54. Free shipping for U.S. listeners and up to $15 U.S. and shipping for international fans. One entry per person, please. Thanks so much for listening to The 5 by Your continued support has made us the number one five-minute segment board game podcast in the world. Hi, it's Meeple Lady, and today I'll be talking about Sidereal Confluence, trading and negotiation in the Elysian Quadrant, a negotiation and economic game about aliens in outer space from WizKids. And if I'm being honest here, when I first encountered this game, I had no idea how to say sidereal. So, you're welcome. As you dive into the game, you'll encounter even more words that you'll probably have no idea how to pronounce. But luckily, the rulebook has some nifty pronunciation guides. You know, for those who can't speak alien. Sidereal Confluence is a 4-9 player game in which each player is a different alien faction, working hard to acquire resources to power their economy and produce goods. 
You basically have all these cool converter tech cards, but don't produce any of the goods required to power them. Factions are also bidding for various technologies, which they can research and gain victory points, but then you unlock that technology to other players in the next round. Players can also invest in colonies that will improve their economy. Sidereal Confluence takes place over six rounds, and within each round there are three phases, trading, economy, and confluence. But before we get started, Sidereal Confluence is a live negotiation game. If you do not like live negotiation, you most definitely will not enjoy this game. While the rulebook is not very descriptive, it's a mere eight pages long, there are player guides on BGGs that will help you understand how the game is played. The rulebook, however, does give a brief introduction to all the factions and recommends which ones to play based on your personality. If this is your first game, then play as the Federan. If you like complex bargains, Imdrill is perfect. My favorite alien faction is the Zethanocracy, which is recommended for players who are good at being mean and pretending to be scary. This description is completely inaccurate about my personality, but I do enjoy playing as these little purple guys. Anywho, back to the game, there's no central board to the game, just lots of cubes in various colors and sizes, cards, and chits. The game grows to be quite a table hog after the six rounds. Alien factions have a unique set of characteristics and difficulty, their own starting converter cards, and an identical deck of cards, which contain the various technologies that potentially can be unlocked. The first phase of the game is trading. Players are free to trade however they please. Everything is fair game except victory points and any agreement is binding. If you fail to live up to your end of the bargain, you will lose VPs. During the trading phase, players may also run their converters, which are shown with a purple arrow. Each card will tell you what's required to run the converter and what it will produce. Sometimes these cards will event a technology, which will net you VPs later in the round during the confluence phase. Sometimes these cards will allow you to upgrade the card by flipping it over, which will net an even better output of resources. I know all these cubes represent various resources such as food and culture, but really when the trading starts, we are all just yelling, I need three blue cubes, who has three blue cubes? It's simply bonkers and super duper fun. I think my favorite line from all the games that I've played is when someone says, help me help you. After trading is over, the economy phase is next. This is when all your economic converters will run, and this is represented by the white arrows. All your economic converters run simultaneously so that you cannot use a resource you receive from one card to power another card. During this phase, some cards will produce goods that require you to give it away in the next round. These provide some useful resources to help barter with in the next trading round. The next phase is the confluence phase. This is when the player who successfully researched a technology gets VPs based on the round. And then all the other players can pull that card out of their deck and use it as itself or burn it to upgrade another technology card. The second phase of the confluence phase is the bidding with ships. Players announce how many ships they have in total, and they can decide to use as many as they want to bid on colonies and research cards. The game continues for six rounds, and after the last round, the person with the most VPs wins the game. There's a conversion rate for all your leftover resources, but it's pretty paltry, so your best bet is to find an engine that will pump out those VPs or consistently research those technologies. I personally enjoy playing Sidereal Confluence with large player counts, as when it's on the lower end, I feel like it's such a tight economy that the person who's producing the most resources ends up being the runaway winner because everyone is forced to trade with them. When there's much more resources in play, gameplay is much more chaotic and open, which makes for a much more enjoyable experience, in my opinion. 
I usually run this game at conventions when it's easier to find a larger group of people who can commit to play. And while this game looks like it could drag on forever, imposing a very strict time for the trading phase keeps the game moving along. I keep trading to just 10 minutes, which makes the game last about 2 hours, 3 hours total with setup and rules explanation. And that's Sidereal Confluence. If you're interested in playing this game, feel free to find me at a convention I'm also attending. And this is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. In the summer of 2017, Raxon Pharmaceuticals sent out 50 training kits to areas affected by a zombie apocalypse. These kits, in the form of board games, were designed to help people run practice missions in which they would rescue survivors while killing and quarantining the infected. Recipients of the games could go to the website myraxon.com to learn more, send copies as gifts, and invite others to buy copies. Nowadays, Raxon is available through traditional channels. It is designed by J. Arthur Ellis and published by Plat Hat Games, with art by Fernanda Suarez. Raxon Pharmaceuticals is part of the Dead of Winter universe as one of the modules in Dead of Winter The Long Night. Raxon is a cooperative game for one to four players, played over a series of rounds called Days. The survivors and zombies are represented as cards placed face down in a grid called the crowd. You turn up one card at a time, leaving cards face up once you've looked at them. Your goal is to rescue all of the healthy people, including friendly survivors who pose you no threat, and hostile survivors who don't want to be saved, thank you very much. The game includes several difficulty levels with different numbers of infected and healthy people. Zombies in the crowd will trigger effects according to how many of a particular type are face up at any one time. These include adding people to the crowd, further infecting the deck, and ending the day. Each player plays as a character with your own player board that shows the actions you can do on your turn. When you take an action, you add a token on your board in the corresponding spot. That token will then have a consequence on future turns. On your turn, you can either take an action or pass. If you take an action, you must first resolve all of the tokens on your board from previous turns. For example, the cost of doing an action might be adding two cards to the crowd and flipping a card. Only then can you do your chosen action and place a token. The way to avoid resolving all of those old tokens is to pass. But if everyone passes too soon, your group might not be able to save all of the healthy people that day, which means you will have to try again when the ratio of healthy to infected might be worse. Overseeing it all is Raxon Pharmaceuticals. You will sometimes draw Raxon cards when you turn up zombies in the crowd or resolve tokens on your player board. Raxon cards are story moments that may or may not trigger depending on the board state when the card is drawn similar to the Crossroads cards in Dead of Winter. They might involve a choice for players to make. They can also make Raxon gain power, as represented by a power track that goes from 0 to 8. If Raxon reaches the end of the power track, you lose the game. Plenty of Raxon cards can come and go with little effect, but others are a punch in the gut. They can also have a snowball effect, since some cards only trigger if you are already doing poorly. You can also lose the game from an infection overrun, 
which happens when you run out of zombies to repopulate the crowd. Some abilities and effects let you peek at face-down cards. The game doesn't include any tokens to mark these cards. I personally prefer to play without the element of memory, and it would be nice if Raxon included some tokens for this purpose. I made some of my own, using polymer clay and cookie cutters. Any generic cubes or tokens would work for this purpose. The contents of the game itself are colorblind friendly, in the sense that color is never the only thing that makes one card different from another. Raxon scales well to a variety of player counts. The size of the crowd varies depending on the number of players. I love the solo mode, which is very similar to the multiplayer version. I agree with Board Game Geek's suggestion of three as an ideal player count. Four players is my least favorite, as it becomes harder to negotiate who will do what when someone's special ability is several turns away. Raxon is a game of risk management. Should I flip this card? Is it worth it to take an action and incur all of these consequences so I can do this cool thing? What are the odds of the next card being the particular kind of infected that we don't want? You work with other players to manage the board state. The different character boards and abilities make it difficult for anyone to be an alpha player and help ensure that each player makes a valuable contribution. After all, saving humanity has to be a group effort. I'm Christy Keel. To see a photo of my custom tokens and for general heckling purposes, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at D6Cmarie. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, I'm Laura Donovan Bannister. This is my first episode with the 5 by and I'm super psyched to be part of the team. For the past year or so, every time I buy a new board game, I automatically get a second game for free. It's a one-time Tetris-style challenge where I get to rearrange everything on my shelves to squeeze one more thing in. Yeah. There will never be enough time or space for all the games I want to play. So when I find one that packs a lot of fun into a small box, that's easy to teach and quick to play, I get pretty happy about it. And WearWords is definitely one of those games. Designed by Ted Alsbach and published by Bezier Games, WearWords is a social deduction game that won the 2017 Golden Geek Award for Best Party Game. It has a werewolf theme, kind of, and if you're familiar with the lineup from Bezier, that's probably not a big surprise. More on that later. In WearWords, players have four minutes to figure out what the secret word is by asking yes or no questions. But that's only the beginning. Each player also has a hidden role, which determines if they're working with the team or against them. So once the four-minute guessing phase is complete, the losing side still has a chance to win by correctly identifying who's who on the other side. Unfortunately, the role names will mean absolutely nothing to you unless you've played other werewolf games. You just have to memorize them. For example, if you're a villager, you try to figure out the secret word. Easy peasy. And if you're a werewolf, you're one of the baddies. You know what the secret word is, and you use that information to try to steer everyone else in the wrong direction, without being too obvious. Because if the team doesn't guess the word in time, but they guess who you are, then you lose. Luckily, there's usually at least one hapless villager who's striking out in the question department and starting to look kind of suspicious. You can add to their frustration by tossing an accusation their way, or maybe just shaking your head with an almost parental disappointment, whatever it takes to throw them off their game. Now to balance things out, the villagers have a secret weapon on their side, the seer. 
If that's your role, you'll know what the word is just like the werewolves, but you'll ask questions to steer the team toward the right answer. This isn't as easy as it sounds. Helping the team guess the right word isn't enough. You also need to get through the voting phase without the werewolves identifying you. If you ask questions that are a bit too on the nose, you won't have much luck. My favorite role in the game from a design perspective is Mayor. It's the only one that's revealed at the start of the game because it has to be. If you're the mayor, you pick a secret word from the list and field the questions from the other players. But here's the catch. You can only respond using tokens that say things like yes, no, and maybe. This is awesome. When you're the mayor and the team gets wildly off track, it's so hard to just sit there. Half the fun is trying to maintain a poker face and failing miserably at it. Meanwhile, it's just as frustrating for your teammates when it seems like all you do is hand out a maybe token for every single question. Because there's no I don't know token. Could you buy a toaster before 1900? I don't know, maybe. And the icing on the cake? The mayor also has a hidden role, like maybe werewolf? You can't trust anyone in this game. Even the person answering the questions can totally lie to you. Oh, and feel free to accuse the mayor all you want during the guessing phase, because they can't say anything back. All they can do is just keep slinging those tokens around the table. What keeps me coming back to WearWords is its versatility. It only takes a few minutes to teach, about five to 10 minutes to play, and works with lots of different groups. The social deduction aspect provides enough strategy to make it fun for gamers. And the 20 questions format makes it accessible to non-gamers too. Every phase has a time limit, which means that the game never gets bogged down by endless debates over who the trader is. So I've used WearWords as an icebreaker, a lunchtime game with coworkers, and as a quick filler on game day when we're waiting for a few more people to show. Clearly I'm a fan. But if I could wave a magic wand, there are a couple of things I'd change. First, I'd update the character artwork to make the game more inclusive. There just isn't much diversity there. Also, I'd prefer a theme that integrates better with the mechanics. For example, maybe it's about a game show where the network doesn't want to pay out a grand prize, and so they plant some fake contestants to keep the real ones from guessing the secret word. I mean, I don't know. Just some story that ties it all together and makes the roles easier to learn and remember for people who don't play other werewolf games. Something else I should mention, you do need to install an app to play the game. The app is free and available for both iOS and Android, but I know this will be a deal breaker for some people. I'm usually one of them, but in this case, it really streamlines the game and I wouldn't want to play without it. WearWords costs around 15 US dollars and plays up to 10 people. There's also a deluxe edition that includes some additional roles and plays up to 20. The production quality is about the same in both. It's not gonna knock your socks off, but works just fine for a party game. In terms of price, you'll pay about five to $10 more for the deluxe edition. Do you need it? No, not if you're gonna play with smaller groups. I bought the regular edition before the deluxe one came out and never felt like I needed more roles, even after repeated plays. I own a bunch of games that rarely see the light of day. Too many, if I'm being honest. But WearWords isn't one of them. It doesn't demand much in terms of time or shelf space, yet consistently delivers a fun and memorable experience. If you've already played WearWords, let me know what you think. I'm Laura Donovan Bannister, and you can find me on Twitter at Laura Wrote It. Thanks for listening to The 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com. 
The Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.